you're new with us, uh, we've been on a series in the book of Revelation, and it has been, in my estimation, just a fabulous, fabulous series. Uh, I have learned so much. I've been humbled. I've been challenged. Uh, I've been called higher in so many ways. I have been engaged in the scriptures. I've been engaged with Jesus, our Lamb, um, in a very, very personal and a very, very profound way. Uh, Jonathan and Jeffrey and, and those who have helped to speak into and shape the formation of this series have just done an outstanding job. Um, I want to encourage you, I had this thought this morning, I want to encourage you, if you missed a lot of the subtle dots that we were connecting in the book of Revelation around the context of our national elections, I'd like for you to go back and consider listening to these messages again, because they're very, very relevant and they're very pertinent about how we as the people of God are to live in the midst of empire, which empire will always exist. It will always exist. And how we are to be people that follow the lamb faithfully and be a faithful witness to Jesus, not a party line forever, regardless of external situation and circumstance. So I know it may feel like I'm driving some things into the ground and really trying to beat a dead horse I really just feel like this is so critical to who we are as a people, especially in light of what happened on Tuesday. Now, today was the day that we were supposed to be talking about what was on the, the series list. We were supposed to be talking about an idea called dispensationalism. We're going to unpack that and, and take a, a pretty strong biblical stance against the idea of dispensationalism, and, and that involves an escapist mentality uh, any of you guys who've been following posts leading up to the election or, or you know, if, if, if things didn't go our way, you'd start hearing a lot of rapture talk. And, and, and what we want to do is we want to clearly, theologically, and biblically debunk that. But we're not going to do that today. Um, we'll save that for next week, and that will actually, unfortunately, wrap up our, our Revelation series. Um, what I'm thinking about doing is actually packaging or framing the Revelation series as maybe Revelation Part 1. And then sometime in 2017, pick up a part two and maybe even a part three or part four. Who knows? But there's just so much wonderful material to extract and we're just scratching the surface. But today, I felt it would be appropriate. And, uh, and this happened really just this morning. I mean, we've been all engaged. We've all been uh, fastened to uh, TV and Twitter and we've been fastened to Facebook and all types of articles and posts and blogs and what have you. And I just felt like today it'd be good for us to talk about uh, the results of our election on Tuesday. But more importantly, I felt like it'd be important for us to talk about who we are as the church. And I think it's important for us to talk about what, a, what the response of the people of God looks like. Um, in the midst of very clear turmoil, in the midst of very clear division and fear, uh, there are a lot of folks out there, and this may not represent you, and that's okay, but uh, outside of the bubble of Colorado Springs or outside the bubble of Antioch or outside the bubble of, of uh, white evangelicalism or outside the bubble of Christianity, there are a lot of people that are angry, they're, they're, they're afraid, and I think it'd be good to at least acknowledge that and for us to talk about what some positive biblical mindsets should be. So if I do my job well, everybody will be offended. <laughs> and so I'm going to really work hard to make sure that I try to offend every single person that is in our room today. Is that good? <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> uh, those of you guys who are joining us today, we just welcome you. We're so glad you're with us. And um, thanks for being a part of this people of God known as Antioch Church. I'm going to pray and we're going to just talk about um, what a biblical response is to our national elections. And we're going to talk about a, uh, some observations that I have and some biblical perspectives. Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you are here and that you've invited us to come to gather and to center around Jesus. 
as the people of God. Lord, every one of us are sitting in a different place, not only physically, but spiritually, emotionally, circumstantially. We all have a different context that brings us to the table of the Lord and that brings us to the presence of God today. And you know every single one of those. You know where we are. Lord, you know what's happening inside of us and what's happening around us. Lord, you know who needs to be comforted. You know who needs to be strengthened. You know who needs to be healed, who needs to be encouraged. You know who needs to have their faith just deepened a little more. And so, Father, we pray right now for every single person that is gathering with us. We pray that your grace would be magnificent. We pray the Holy Spirit would reveal Jesus. And Lord, we pray for the church at large here in our city and abroad. We pray today that as the people of God gather around the presence of God and the table of Jesus, that they would find you and they would find a clarifying and a centering perspective and a peace that enables them to be a witness to the world. And we pray for the world. Father, we pray for those that are grieving today, those that are hurt, those that are angry, those that are bitter, those that are afraid, those that are divisive. And Father, we pray that you would put a Christian a lover and a follower of Jesus in their path and that their witness would be sound and that it would be disarming and that it would be like leaven that gets into the heart and the mindset and the attitude of a people and it changes them and it causes them to think differently about you and about themselves and about the world around them. We ask these things today in Christ's name and the power of your spirit, amen. I'd like to invite you to join me in the scriptures to go to Luke chapter 24. We're gonna go to Luke 24 and begin in verse 36. And the context of this particular verse is a little similar to the context that we find ourselves in today. Jesus, who is the son of God, the son of man, fully man, fully God, we know him as a lamb that was slain. We know him as the sinless, suffering servant of God, that was sent by God to be the substitution and the sacrifice for mankind to bring us back into relationship with the Father. That's Jesus. Uh, And here he is, he's speaking to his disciples, which is very simply his students who became his friends. And he's speaking to them specifically after he was crucified, which means that he he was gone through a very torturous form of execution. And he was crucified, he was buried, he was resurrected by the power of God, demonstrating that he was in fact who he said that he was, and God therefore was in fact who he said that he was. He overcame sin, he overcame death, he overcame the grave, and he came back in a literal, physical, resurrected body, and now he's talking to these these guys, these followers, that had followed him for roughly three to three and a half years, and These guys were the ones to carry on his message and they were to carry on the work of God's kingdom. And here he is speaking to them in verse 36. He says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, what I find here very interesting and we can apply this to our current context is that Jesus stood amongst a people that were very distraught. He stood in the middle of their conversation. He came near to them. Friends, I wanna encourage you, for those who have dissenting ideas and those who have uh, disagreeing perspectives on issues of the day, I encourage you to go and stand amongst them. I encourage you to draw near. I do not encourage you to draw away. Don't distance yourself. Don't avoid. Don't evade. Draw near. Be close. Be incarnational, which is just a beautiful theological word that means be skin and bones right close to the where people are at. Jesus came and he stood amongst them and he says, peace be with you. One of the characteristics of the people of God is that we have the capability to bring peace in the midst of chaos, in the midst of dissension, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of fear, in the midst of hostility and anger. We're gonna look at this here in a few minutes, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Those that come and have the ability by the grace, 
by the fullness of God's spirit, by the love that reflects the reality of who God is to bring peace into a situation and perhaps more importantly, into the hearts and the minds of humanity. So Jesus comes and he says, peace be to you. My prayer, my commissioning prayer today before we leave is that we would be sent into groups and pockets of people. We would be sent into Facebook threads. We would be sent into coffee shop conversations and we would be sent to bring peace to the people that are around us. And just a side note, if, if you don't know anyone who is really frustrated and aggravated and afraid and, you, and you're listening to the, some of the things that I'm saying and going, none of my friends are afraid. They're all pretty stoked. Well, you might need to expand your circle of influence. Because my friends on Facebook are very, very diverse, and I've got some that are elated. I've got some that felt, well, they just are very, very excited. And then I've got some that are very, very, very angry. And I have some that are devastated and some that are afraid, and that is actually a beautiful thing. So we'll continue reading verse 37. They were startled or they were frightened. They thought they saw a ghost, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? That would have been very, very appropriate for some of us had our candidate of choice not won, but it's very appropriate for some of us today who our candidate of choice didn't win. And the word of Jesus is, why are you so troubled? Why are you so afraid? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Now, I know I'm speaking to a completely different context, but listen, the principle remains the same. As the people of God, trouble will come. And for those of us who deeply in our heart believe that we were saved by, by some measure of our guy getting in, listen, trouble will come. It will come. And it may not come in the way that you expect it to come, or it may not come in the timing that you expect it to come, or it may not come in these next four years, or it may. But here's what I know, trouble will come. But I also know that we can have peace and we can have steadfastness in the midst of that trouble. And that becomes our witness to the world. And so church, I wanna speak to you today and I wanna speak to all of those that are listening by podcast and I wanna say to you, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet, Jesus says. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I love this, he is saying, Everything that I've been preaching to you, everything that I've been teaching, all the announcements and the proclamations of the kingdom, they're here. I have been resurrected. I have defeated sin. And look, look and see. And that should be our posture. Everything that we've been saying, if we've been saying the right thing about the kingdom, if we've been saying the right thing, if our message has been consistent with the message of the kingdom, we should be and we could be saying, you don't have to be troubled. Look and see. We're going to come near into the situation and the church is going to continue to be who the church has always been called to be from the beginning of the church's inception. It's not changed. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. There's an element of the sovereign nature of God that Jesus is speaking to. There's an element here that he is deconstructing the idea that difficult things somehow mean that God's not in them. And if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll associate ease with God. We'll associate comfort with God. We'll associate us getting what we wanted with God. And friends, that's, that's exactly what Jesus is deconstructing here. He's saying, I told you all along, difficulty, suffering, struggle, I'm going to die. I am going to be beaten. I am going to be tortured. But there is a higher transcendent perspective that is in operation here. And we don't have to be afraid of that. We can be at peace, married to the purpose and the will of God in the midst of extreme difficulty and hostility. Jesus, his message has never, never changed. 
Verse 45, so he opened their minds so that they can understand the scriptures. And I pray that to be upon us as a people, that our minds by the spirit of God would be open and illuminated so that we can understand the scriptures, so that we can understand the word of God, not the word that we want the word to be, but the word of God as it was meant to be. Remember, as we were talking about interpretation of the book of Revelation, there is only one meaning for scripture, many applications, but it means what he meant it to mean, not what we want it to mean. And that means that we must approach the words of God with humility and with the fear of the Lord and with a teachable spirit. And it means at times that we have to lay down our, our, our mindsets and our presuppositions and our worldviews And maybe it means that we lay down our political agendas and say, God, what does your word actually say for what it says? Or else we'll never be transformed by it. He told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. Can I just take a moment here without going into a lot of documentary on this, that God is thrilled with ethnicity. He's thrilled with it. He loves the diversity. He loves it so much. And if there's anything that we do that in some way remotely challenges or opposes or refutes the idea that God loves so passionately people that are very different from us. I'd like to propose to you, it is not the gospel of Jesus and it's not the kingdom of God. He says, this message for which I died and for which I came is to go to all nations. And then here's the key verse we're gonna center in on. You are witnesses of these things. Church, we are witnesses. And when I'm going to, I'm not going to re-preach what we preached four weeks ago. I encourage you to take a look at it again, but this is essentially the message of the book of Revelation. You are called to follow the lamb and be a faithful witness to Jesus. And if you remember, I said this last week, if your candidate of choice wins the election, being a faithful witness looks like something. It looks like humility. It looks like grace. It looks like compassion. It looks like listening. It looks like caring. It looks like comfort. And if your candidate of choice did not win, being a faithful witness looks like something. It looks like not buying into the fear rhetoric and the propaganda. It, it looks like listening. It looks like not responding with vitriol and hatred and divisiveness. In both situations, it looks like us coming together and loving and listening and serving with a spirit and an attitude of humility, kindness, and care. Not engaging in how many more blog posts or how many more articles and how many more links can I throw up on my thread than you can to prove my point. At some point, our point being proven is not the point. At some point, being right in the political discourse is going to cause us to lose our witness. And that doesn't mean that we don't engage. It just means that we have to be very mindful in the heart and the spirit and the attitude by which we engage. And it also means that we take more time to listen than it does than we speak. Because if I sat down and I pulled just this small little microcosm, and then I went to my, my brothers and sisters in the campus of Colorado, Colorado campus, Colorado College. And then if I went to the Bay Area or if I went to the streets of the inner city in Atlanta or if I went up into the Northwest, it doesn't matter. The people that we talk to are gonna have different positions and they're gonna have different ideas. And there's gonna be an element of truth in all of those. But here's what I can guarantee you. There's gonna be a human story. There's gonna be a human story and there's gonna be a human heart by which we are called to connect with and to love. This, is the, this, is, this is really is the classic fallacy of, of Christians in general. We are so determined to show people that we're right. And we're so determined to be smarter and better. And guys, listen, if we would actually just ask better questions 
and we would really try to identify with the pain and the struggle of the people around us, it will win an opportunity for us to share with wisdom and tenderness the things that we feel that we hold dear to. Point number one, very simply, is remember, church, that we are called to be a faithful witness. Remember that. And remember that we're called to be a faithful witness to who God is, not who we think he is. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna get too off track here, but there is a particular party platform and they have an image of who they think God is and it's not who God is. And I could go to the other side and I could say that they have an image of who God is and that is not God, who God is. There might be elements, there might be facets, there might be characteristics that they have, but it's not the fullness of who God is. And if you think that God is upstairs throwing a huge party because Donald Trump won, you're wrong. All right, let's keep moving on. So what is the church? I didn't get very many amens on that one, did I? <laughs> I expected it. We are an alternative community. The church of the living Christ has always been a people that are called out. The very word ecclesia means to be called out. We are called out. We are a separate alternative community that belongs to the people, that belongs to the kingdom of God. We are dynamically different, or at least we're called to be dynamically different than the culture we live in today, and that includes party lines. We are called to speak to both sides. We are not called to speak for one side or the other. We are called to be a prophetic voice to issues. We are called to be a prophetic voice to candidates. We are called to be a prophetic voice to the church. And that's what I've endeavored to do. Much to the frustration, perhaps, of some people that wanted me to leverage my platform or my spiritual influence or my spiritual authority to subversively promote one candidate over the other. I don't feel like spiritual leaders are called to do that. In fact, I feel like it's pretty manipulative and abusive of the influence and authority that's been given to them. Because if I align myself with one candidate over another, I have forfeited my right to speak prophetically to that candidate. And again, I want you to hear very clearly, this is not passivity. I believe that the church of the living God is called to engage in the issues of the day and we're called to engage in the spheres of the day. We're just called to engage in a way that is different than many of us, I think, assume that we're supposed to engage with them. We're called to live above politics. What is your primary message? What is your primary message? I want you to think about this. I'm not talking about just generically. I'm talking about in moments where the heat is on, in moments where conflict is tense, in moments where you feel divided. What's your primary message? Is your primary message to attack? Is your primary message to defend? Or is your primary message to be a faithful witness to who Christ is to both parties in the exact same situation? And let me ask you this. What does your primary message say about who Christ is? Now, this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like Mr. Rogers and get all up in your neighborhood. And, and I might be... I might be uh, wandering outside of the boundaries of my authority here. We'll see. But you know, when, 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 you, when you jump on Facebook or Twitter or whatever your social media device is, and you now plant your ideas to a broad spectrum, you just throw it out there, and you say things like, God saved us. Or you say things like, we turned this election. Or you say things like, 
uh, history belongs to the intercessors, which I do believe is true. But when you say things like that and you get the minority, the Muslim, the LGBTQ, when you get uh, the person who doesn't know Christ, the atheist, the agnostic, when you get the person that has wandered away from the faith because of the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies that they've seen in the church, how we won't forgive President Bill Clinton, but we'll excuse Donald Trump of every immoral thing that he's done. When they see that and they hear, do you think that that's a faithful witness to Jesus? Do you think that makes God attractive? Do you really think that a third great awakening is going to come by a group of people reading your Facebook post that the God that they feel like hates them and is anti everything that they're for, do you really feel like that's going to cause a third great awakening to come? Because when I think of third great awakening, I think we're actually poised and primed regardless of who won the elections. I think that the church is being called to loving their neighbor and loving their enemy right now like never before and we're failing at it. We're failing at it. And if we want a third great awakening to come, Here's what it looks like with the election of Donald Trump. Go pursue every immigrant, every Muslim, every person of a different sexual orientation and show them that you are not who Donald Trump is. You are who Jesus is. And it would look differently if Hillary Clinton was elected president. It would look different, but it would look the same. It would look the same. And what I mean by that is our marching orders have not changed. We are called to represent Christ and his kingdom, not a party. So if you posted that you are so glad that God saved us and he had mercy on us and history belonged, don't, don't feel condemned, don't feel any of those things. What I want you to understand is the message that you are sending to the marginalized people in your realm of influence is not saying the same thing to people that are dying and going to hell without Christ. It's not say, it is not sending the message that you want them to hear. It's turning them off. One of the things that I wrote is I said, I'm hoping that the church can hear that so many of our weaknesses and our inconsistencies and our hypocrisies were exposed this election. It's true, guys. This election was a mirror to the church. It was a mirror to the church. Not all of the church, I understand that I'm making huge sweeping generalizations here, but it was a mirror to a big part of the church. And you know what happened? A lot of the church validated and verified and justified why a lot of people in the world don't, don't like us. It really did. And we have to be tender and humble and sensitive to that reality. If we double down on our orientation and we pick up our God and guns rhetoric, guys, we are gonna continue to alienate ourselves from the very people we're called to bring into the kingdom of God. We got a huge job cut out for us in the next four years in my estimation. I said that we have a lot to evaluate and we have a lot to internalize and adjust as we aim to be a faithful witness and see his kingdom come in the long haul because the world trusts us now less than ever before. Point number two or observation number two is very simply this, the culture of the kingdom has not changed. The elections of Tuesday do not change the culture of the kingdom. Third party, write-in, liberal, conservative, it does not change the culture of the kingdom. And what is the culture of the kingdom? It's very simply, love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. And I just thought how fitting it would be for us to read a couple of scriptures today on how Jesus defines who those people are and, and what he says about these. So why don't you come with me to Matthew chapter 22. And I know they tell us that we're not supposed to talk politics and religion and we're supposed to stay away from these kind of things, but I emphatically disagree. This is where the battle is raging. In fact, I think that we're here in a lot of ways because pastors have failed to do their job to teach the people of God how to engage in a civil, gracious, loving, kind manner. 
Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck and Mark Levin are not the pastors and the prophets of the church. Jesus and the scriptures and the people of God are. So we're not going to shrink away from these things. We're going to learn together. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. I love this. Jesus dealt with these party lines. And they were constantly trying to kind of sway him to one side or the other. They were constantly trying to trick him. They were constantly trying to get him to endorse their political ideology. Jesus dealt with this. One of them, verse 35, an expert in the law tested him with this question. And he said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Think about your conversations. Is it loving to God? Is it representing the character and the nature, the steadfastness of God well? And then he says, verse 39, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself for all the law and the prophets hang on these. In other words, he's saying, if we could just get down these two commandments, we wouldn't really have to worry about what we wear, what we drink, what we dress, do we dance, do we not, do we play cards, do we go to move? If we could just really just get these two things down well, rightly, if we could just be a people that are more committed to loving God and loving our neighbor and less committed to creating boxes that alienate and label and ostracize and judge people, he says, you're getting close to my kingdom. So then, on a separate occasion, and now I'm looking at Luke chapter 10, and many of us know this, for those of you guys who may not be familiar with this, I'm going to read the whole story because I think it's just a marvelous story. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37, and this is a prophetic story for us today. This is a prophetic message. What does that mean? It very simply means it is, it is not this dry, static, sterile, lifeless. It is something that God, I believe, is speaking on and breathing on for his church right now. If there's any message, and there's many, but if there's any message that he's highlighting, it's this one right here, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? And he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's almost like the guy was spitting verbatim what Jesus just said in Matthew 22. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Go, you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. And this is where we get in trouble. I want you to read this parable through the party line lens. I want you to read this through all the political gridlock. I want you to read it from racial lens. I want you to read it from ethnicity lens. I want you to read it from socio-demographics. I want you to read this in a different way today. Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. For those of you guys who aren't familiar with what a priest and a Levite are, these are people that represent God. You could put in there a Christian. You could put in there any denominational label you want to. You could put in there white evangelical. You could put in there Republican. You could put in there whatever you want. But it's, these are the people that historically and contextually are the people that were called by God and represented God and they carried positions of influence and authority. But a Samaritan, an outsider. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were considered a, a less breed. Ethnically, they were not embraced. It says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he had mercy on him, had compassion He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine and then he put the man on his donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he says, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Let me, let me translate this. Which of these people do you think accurately represented God to the person that was victimized by life? Which of these accurately represented who Jesus is to the person who was afraid, who was isolated, who was alone, who was marginalized, who was disenfranchised, who was... Who, this is a real... This is, this is where our people are at. This is the people of the world are lying on the side of the road. Like, like can we just get that? On a very human on a very visceral level, can we get the fact that people that we call our enemies are f afraid? Like, just for a second, can we just push pause on CNN and Fox News? Can we just push pause on that and go, there are people made in the image of God who Christ came and suffered and died for that are lying on the side of the road. Let's just get there. And then let's get down to who are we in the story and how are we gonna respond? And the guy said, the neighbor was the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Guys, we still belong to and we still represent a kingdom, not a political platform. Number three, the Sermon on the Mount is the ethic of the kingdom. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter five. This right here should be what every person reads before they post something on Facebook. <laughs> Matthew chapter five, verse three says, number one, blessed are the poor in spirit. I've not been reading a lot of poor in spirit posts. Holla. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Number two, Verse four, blessed are those who mourn. There have been a handful of times since Tuesday that Christy and I have mourned. I have people say, why are you mourning? You should be, you should be happy. You should, you should be in joy. Christy posted a brilliant response back. You know, there's a movie out called Hacksaw Ridge right now. It's a true story about a man by the name of Desmond Doss who joins the military to be a medic. And he's really, he's really not identifying with either side. Desmond Doss is a man who goes into harm's way in the midst of World War II on an island of Okinawa so that he can rescue people, rescue people that have been wounded. He can rescue people that are dying. You know, there's, there's a couple of different people that are out there when a war is fought. There are people who, um, they rejoice because their side won. And there are people who weep because their side lost. But then there is a third category of people, and they just weep. Because in war, there really is no winner or loser. Or there's really no winner. There really is no winner. Guys, listen, I don't know where you stand, but I just want you to know that after what happened on Tuesday, there really is no winner. That's, that's, that really is my position. When I look at the state of our nation and the level of hatred and divisiveness and anger and pain, how, how can I say that, that I won as a result of that? And I know that there would be a whole nother group of people that would feel in the exact same way. I know because I'm, I know those people. Those were the same people eight years ago and four years ago. They were just as sad. They were just as afraid. They were just as wanting Jesus to come back. But there is a mourning that comes by looking at the state of the church. And it's moments like what happened in the past two and a half years and, and, and really probably more pronounced the past two and a half weeks. There's moments that show the church who she really is. 
And there's parts of the church that just don't get it. And there's parts of the church, you guys, that are actually party to hurting people. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And I weep and I mourn. I literally have done this. I've, I've wept and I've mourned from an article that I read by, by a gay Muslim Pakistani man that sounded more like Jesus than people in his church. Go to my Facebook. You can read it. It's brilliant. It is marvelous. And the man doesn't identify with the Christian faith, but I'm here to tell you it is more Christian-like than anything that I've heard from the Christian party. That breaks my heart. And I can go on and on and on and tell you the things that have just wrecked me on the inside. Blessed are those who mourn. Listen, if you've not taken time to allow God to pierce and penetrate your heart and to bring you into a place of mourning, I encourage you to do it because that's what the church should be doing right now. Verse five, blessed are the meek. We had a guy in our church. Wasn't very satisfied, wasn't very happy. We had another guy in our church address him and say, then you should just leave our country. Can I just pastor you guys for a minute? If you ever tell someone to leave our country because they don't agree with your political views, I just, I just want to humbly rebuke you and tell you that that looks nothing like Jesus. That is not who the church is called to be. And that's why the world hates us. And there's nothing about those kind of statements that are meek. We can do better. And we're called to do better. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Guys, I want righteousness in our country. I want righteousness for the unborn, and I want righteousness for the immigrant. And I want righteousness for the Muslim, and I want righteousness for the person who doesn't believe the same way that I do religiously, and I want righteousness for the person whose sexual orientation is not what I would choose. And I want righteousness for the disabled, and I want righteousness for the poor and for the rich. I want righteousness Let's allow our definitions to be more holistic. Let's allow our perspectives to be more comprehensive. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, one of the greatest ways to show people that who a political candidate is, is not who that, that candidate's people are, be people of mercy. When people disagree with you, be merciful. When people are angry with you, be merciful. When people are venting, be merciful. And let me tell you what not to say. Don't go around trying to rebuke people, telling them to get over it. It's not helpful. Don't go around assuming that, that you know some struggle that people have walked in. You don't know their struggle and you don't know their pain. You know your struggle and you know your pain, but you don't know their struggle and you don't know their pain. And to discount and invalidate their pain by telling them to get over it cuts the legs out from underneath your influence. Your message will not be heard. I hope I still have a job after this. <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. In your conversations, in your rhetoric, in your language, if you are not somehow trying to find peace, I want to challenge you to reevaluate it. I want to encourage you to be quiet. Peace does not mean passivity. It does not mean compromise. To be a peacemaker requires greater thought. It requires greater critical analysis. It requires greater humility. It requires greater self-control to be a peacemaker. It requires the ability to sit and say, why are you so passionate about your issues that I absolutely cannot stand and listen? 
you might find something that'll change you, God forbid. You might find something that'll so deeply challenge you that it might mark you and shape your life. It might actually transform you. God may actually use one of your enemies to help you become more like Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are children of God. Hey, I'm just gonna blast through these next two points really, really quick. This is point number four. We need to understand that love casts out fear and mercy triumphs over judgment. And you can find that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. And you can also find that in James chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord knows I have needed mercy. You know, and if you would have taken every ugly, grotesque, nasty thing that I've done and string it together and put music behind it, nobody would vote for me either. Hey, who's... (laughs) I should have not gotten the loudest amen for that statement. All right, let me, let me just wrap this up. And Jonathan, come on up here and let's have, let's have uh, the attendance of our table come forward this morning. The final statement I wanna make is very simply, the kingdom of God is a long-term work. It is not a short-term cycle. I'm gonna say that one more time. The kingdom of God is a long-term work. It is not a short-term cycle. And I would venture to say, I'm, I'm already here at the edge. I'm just gonna go ahead and just jump off. But I would venture to say that we as the people of God would perhaps do a little bit more damage if we would just be faithful and if we would be consistent and if we would be just as fervent and just as passionate in the four years between the years trying to get our candidate into position. I would like to believe that if Hillary Clinton became president that we would be just as passionate about praying for her. I would like to believe that. I would like to believe that we would be just as faithful to the scriptures that commands us to pray for those that are in authority, not just those that we want to be in authority. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, what we've done is we become very, very passionate about praying for the person that we want into our position and not praying for the person who is actually in position of authority. I want you to think about this. I know I'm speaking to a larger audience today. Guys, if we've prayed for Donald Trump to become president more in the past two months than we have to pray for our actual president, Obama, in the past eight years, that is not faithful. Come on up, guys. I wrote this, I read this quote yesterday and I just thought it was so brilliant. I want to read it to you. It's by a theologian named James K.A. Smith. It says, imagine being a people who do not think presidential election means either the salvation of the universe or the end of the world. Because we fall on one side or the other, don't we? There are some of us who think God saved us and there are some of us who think it's the end of the world. But what if, what if the church could actually be and is actually called to be a people that do not think that one presidential election means either the salvation of the universe or the end of the world. Imagine being a people who have a long perspective. Imagine being a people who are tied to an ancient people and that this ancient people has actually managed to live peaceful and quiet lives across centuries. Imagine being connected to an ancient people that actually thrived and survived in kingdoms or democracies under persecuting tyrants or benevolent queens. This new cycle, this election season, this year, this Congress, they are all blips in time for a people who are looking for a kingdom come. Do you understand what that means? This is just a blip. When you can faithfully pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, you are ascribing to something that is eternally bigger than a four-year election cycle. We should not feel like our worlds are collapsing. We should instead cultivate a kind of healthy distance, 
not being aloof or indifferent, but nonetheless exhibiting a kind of holy ambivalence that is not so absorbed by the present moment. We are stretched people and we are older than this campaign and we look for a kingdom well beyond it. Friends, you belong to the church of Jesus. A church that has thrived, thrived under Roman persecution. It is thriving currently in North Korea. It has thrived in starvation. It has thrived in shipwreck. And through the majority of Christianity, we have been a people that have existed without democracy. We have been a people who, who, who couldn't even, we couldn't even argue on Facebook over who was being elected if we wanted to. We're a people that are planted into the earth to reflect Jesus, to love one another and to bring his kingdom to the world. So thank you for letting me rant a little today. And I'm sure that somebody disagreed with something, but that's okay. Because hopefully I did it in a loving and a Christ-like and in a humble manner. We're gonna come to the table and here's the beautiful thing. Jesus invites the Republican and a Democrat. He invites the third party. He invites the Muslim. He invites the lesbian, the bi, the transgender, the gay. He invites the refugee. He invites the religious arrogant. He invites the rich. He invites the poor. He invites the charismatic. He invites the mainline denominational. He invites us to his table to receive mercy. Today, we're gonna receive mercy. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you don't know him, you don't know his heart, you don't know his heart. I'm not talking about structures and systems. I'm talking about knowing the heart of God and being connected to his people. Friend, you can, you can choose to receive the grace of God today is being extended freely to you, acknowledging that you've sinned against God, that you've offended him, acknowledging that you've wandered from his people, that you've attempted to live life on your own, acknowledging that your arrogance and your independence have caused you to be distant from him. But humbly, if you would come and say, I receive the gift of Christ, your life, your death, your resurrection have cleansed me and they have welcomed me back into your family. Friends, in a moment, in a moment, you'll be received as he extends the grace of God. So I want to invite you to come, come to the table of the Lord. Let's all stand to our feet.